Welcome to POP, the sermon podcast for Peace Lutheran Church in Gehenna, with Pastors Doug Warburton and Tony Katko. So we're continuing this series from a book that Carrie Newhoff wrote called Didn't See It Coming, and the challenge that we're looking at today is the challenge of pride. Now, my favorite story about pride comes from this seminary professor, Dr. Mark Allen Powell, and he shared this story about how when he was first starting out, giving one of his first sermons at a congregation, and he was putting a lot of thought into what he would say to people afterwards. It was much like in our traditional service where people would kind of go through the line and shake hands with the pastor. And you know what most pastors hear after every sermon, no matter what it's about? It's two words. Good sermon. Right, Doug? Best words. Good sermon, which especially when you weren't the one preaching are great to hear. That was a good sermon. It happens sometimes. No, but he put a lot of thought in this. What was he going to say? Because he didn't want to sound too full of himself, but he also didn't want to dismiss the positive feedback. And so he came up with this nice Christian response. He decided he would say, well, thank you, but it was just the Holy Spirit you heard speaking through me today. And so that's what he did, person after person. But then Towards the end of this line, this elderly gentleman walks up and shakes his hand, and sure enough, Pastor Mark, that was a good sermon, and he says his line, well, thank you very much, but really, it was Jesus that you heard speaking to you. And he says, no, it wasn't that good, son. (laughs) Just great, you're not Jesus, right? You should remember that. But I love that, because we all know that too much pride is a bad thing, that we shouldn't feel too full of ourselves. And then sometimes when we do start to feel full of ourselves, we get that false sense of humility and we say, oh, it's nothing. Thank you. I am great. But no, it's nothing. Yeah, that happens, right? But as I was reflecting on the chapters on pride in this book, I realized that this struggle of pride isn't a struggle for everyone. It's not. A lot of us do maybe think too highly of ourselves, struggle with ego, but for some people, it's actually the opposite. Some people actually don't have enough sense of self-worth, and maybe that's what you need to work on. I mean, yes, most people know the Bible says we all have sinned, we all fall short of the glory of God, but then there's also what God says in Genesis. God makes humankind in the image of God and then looks at this creation and says, you are good. You're not perfect, but no matter what you've done, you are good, you are worth loving. Maybe that's what you need to be reminded of. But here's what I think is more universal than pride. What's really universal is we all have this fear of feeling ashamed of ourselves. Maybe you've heard about this study that was done a while back that was listing people's top fears. And in this study, at least, the people that were polled rated the fear of public speaking above the fear of death which means that for a lot of us, we are more afraid of getting up in front of a crowd and making a fool out of ourselves than we are afraid of dying. There's this real sense that sometimes we value our reputation more than we value our lives. We deeply care about what other people think about us and what we think other people think about us, whether it's true or not. Now this makes sense, it's natural. It's actually an evolutionary trait, believe it or not. Because when we were in tribal times and you didn't fit in with your tribe and you got kicked out, that was a death sentence. And so it makes sense, of course, we should be concerned about what other people think about us. The problem, though, is when that becomes our motivation for life, 
When that's all that drives you is just what other people expect or how other people see you. That's not a happy way to live. It's not a healthy way to live either. Many of you know that uh, I'm a parent of two young kids, about one and four, and I'm amazed already as parenting these young kids how much we care about what other people think of our kids. And let's be honest, parents, grandparents, it's not just for their sake. We care because we think they're judging us as parents based on how our, how our kids act. So let me give you an example. We were traveling recently, and we were really worried about the flights. How are these two young kids going to do on an airplane? Are they just going to make it a nightmare for everybody? We're going to be so embarrassed. And it turns out they were fine. We were proud of them, right? They were not perfect, but they were good on the plane. But on one of those flights... There was another baby. And this baby, this baby was about the same age as our youngest, about one years old. And this baby was fussing and screaming basically the whole time. And you know what I thought to myself? We're doing great. <laughs> We're doing good. And you know the other people on this plane? They're going to look at that family. And then they're going to look at us and they're going to say, what great parents these are. Right? Their kids, they may be eating and there's crumbs everywhere, but at least they're not screaming what great parents they are. And how ridiculous is that, right? Everyone who knows anything about kids should know that like all other acts of God, sometimes keeping them quiet is out of your control, right? There's nothing you can do about it, but it doesn't matter. We still care so much about things like that, what other people think of us. Now, sometimes the results are just silly like that. We get a little extra stress. But over time, when that's how we view our lives, there are real consequences. I mean, think about our calling as Christians. Should the main question driving us be, what are other people saying about us? No, it should be, how do we live a good life following Jesus? And sometimes that motivation of what other people think, that gets in the way of us being a part of the kingdom of God. So there's this one time in the Gospels there's many times, actually, where the Pharisees are trying to test Jesus. And one of those times, here's how they set Jesus up, by saying this about him. George? No phones back there, George. <laughs> Just kidding. All right, so, so they say this. <laughs> George, one of the le lesser-known disciples. All right. <laughs> Moving on. All right, so the Pharisees. Teacher, they said. We know how honest you are. You are impartial and don't play favorites. You teach the way of God truthfully. Now, in other words, Jesus, you don't put too much stock into what people think about you. you. You say and do the right thing no matter the consequences. Now, they're not being very sincere here because they're setting him up to ask this controversial question, hoping that he'll get in trouble with the crowd. But they're still right. That is what we see about Jesus. He is going to do what he thinks is, is right, no matter the consequences, not just to please the crowd, which is why sometimes the crowds drive him out of a town because he says not what they want to hear. Then think about what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself. 
To follow Jesus, it means that we have to empty of our, ourselves of that pride, empty of our, ourselves of caring so much about what other people think about us. So in the book, the author lifts up this story from the Bible, this great example of pride, the story of King David and Bathsheba. I'm sure a lot of you have heard this, but it's a great story, so let's tell it. So David was the king of Israel at this time, and he was a pretty popular king. He was a hero. He was known as this man after God's own heart. But then we get this passage in 2 Samuel chapter 11. So Israel's troops are off at battle, and King David is not with them. He's at home enjoying the comforts of his palace. Now, the heroic thing to do, the honorable thing to do, would be, whenever possible, for the king to be out there with his troops. But I'm sure King David still thought he was a good king. I'm sure he just said, well, I'm too important for that. Well, when I was younger, I risked my life. I, I don't have to do that anymore. So David is at home in his palace, and he's getting bored. And so he's looking out, and what does he see? He sees this woman bathing on a rooftop, a common practice, Bathsheba, and he asks for his guards to bring her to me. Now, David doesn't care that he finds out she's married, and she's married to a general of his. He doesn't care about that. He doesn't care about the fact that a woman wouldn't have had a choice. If a king propositions you, there's not really anything you can do about it. David's going to get what David wants. But then, of course, Bathsheba gets pregnant. And David decides, well, it was just this one thing. We can, we can smooth this out and cover it up. And so David comes up with this plan, and he calls Uriah back from the fight. And he says, Uriah, you've been such a great soldier. You've earned some time to rest. Please go home and be with your wife, please. And Uriah refuses. He says, no, it wouldn't be right. I couldn't do it in good conscience. I know all of my troops are out there risking their lives. I can't be at home enjoying the comforts of my wife. And so he sleeps outside while he's back at home. So David says, well, you leave me no choice. And so he sends Uriah back to the fighting, this time in the front lines where the heat of the battle is worse. And of course, Uriah is killed. And a little bit while later, after the morning has passed, David marries Bathsheba. Everything's good. One of the interesting parts of this story is how quickly things can get out of hand when you try to cover something up, right? I mean, David didn't set out to murder somebody, but that's where he ended up going because one thing led to another and he had all this power and this pride and that's where it led to murder. But then the story takes an interesting turn because Nathan comes on the scene. And Nathan is a prophet, and Nathan knows what David has done, and he decides he's going to confront the king. But he's also smart about it, because Nathan knows that someone like David, someone with a lot of power, a lot of ego, if you just accuse them of something, they're going to get defensive, make all sorts of excuses. And so instead, Nathan tells him a story. He says, David, I heard about these two people in your kingdom. There is a rich man and a poor man. Now, this poor man had basically nothing. All he had in the whole wide world was this one little lamb. But he loved this lamb so much. It was kind of cute and kind of creepy. He would even sleep with this lamb at night. He took this lamb everywhere with him. He loved this little lamb. And then there was the rich man who had everything. He had flocks and herds of animals. He had no idea how many animals he even had. But then a traveler came by, so the rich person had to make a feast for them. And he didn't take one of his many lambs that he never would have missed. He stole the one thing that that poor man loved and killed it and cooked it up for dinner. What do you think about that, David? 
David has all this self-righteous anger. He says, not in my kingdom. Tell me the, man, the name of that rich man because surely he deserves to die. And Nathan says, it's you, David. You are the man. That's exactly what you've done with Uriah and Bathsheba. And after that, David finally sees and admits what he's done is wrong and starts to repent of it. Now, it doesn't mean there are no consequences. There's still a lot of consequences for David's family after this. But David starts on that path to asking for mercy because Nathan is there. See, sometimes we need people like Nathan in our lives too. We need people who can be honest with us, people who we trust, people who we can listen to. In the book, Carrie points out that the antidote to pride is pretty simple, pretty obvious. It's humility. And one of the ways that you can become more humble is by being ridiculously honest with yourself. Now, sometimes that can mean self-reflection, being honest, but other times we need someone else to point out our blind spots. We need other people to be honest with us about the good and the bad. So let me ask you, do you have someone like that in your life? Do you have someone who you trust, who you listen to, who can be honest with you about all the good and bad things you're doing? And if not, then maybe that's someone you need to seek out. Or maybe it's someone you need to listen to who's already there. It could be a family member or a friend. It could be a therapist or a mentor. But we all need someone to keep us honest, to help us to stay humble. Now, there's another side to humility that I want to point out because I think this is important. I don't remember where I heard this. I think it was in a sermon at camp somewhere or something. But someone gave this definition of humility, and I've come to love it. He said this, true humility is not seeing yourself as more or less than what you are. It's just seeing yourself for who you are, not more, but also not less. Because sometimes the honest feedback that you need to hear is a reminder of what God says in Genesis, that no matter what you've done, you are still good. You are still worth loving. You see, we need to be honest and let others be honest with us. So I want to end with this ancient practice of the church that can help us to stay humble, the practice of confession. Now, confession is one way to be honest with God and with ourselves, and it's an act of faith. Because to come to God saying the truth about our lives means, first of all, that we trust God cares. God is interested in what you've done. And the other thing is we have to trust that that forgiveness and grace are true for you and for me too. So let's take a moment and quiet your thoughts, take a couple deep breaths, and then we'll join together in these words of confession. Let us confess together. Sometimes our lives are a mess because of choices we have made or because of choices others have made. Sometimes our lives are great and we forget to be grateful and humble. Forgive us when we think too highly of ourselves and our pride or vanity gets in the way of who we're meant to be. Forgive us when we don't value ourselves enough 
and we forget to honor the image of God in us. Forgive the wrong we've done and the good we failed to do and lead us to walk humbly in the way of Jesus. God, who is rich in mercy, loved us even when we were dead in sin and made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Almighty God, strengthen you with power through the Holy Spirit so that Christ may live in your hearts through faith. Amen.